Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 9, verses 27 to 38. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. All right. Thank you very much. Good morning. Everybody good? Uh, turn up number one for me. Light number one. It might be up. Who knows? Um, okay. So uh, I wrote a massive sermon to preach to you this morning. And I woke up in the middle of the night and thought, Tommy, it's too long. <laughs> and so I got up and I cut the middle out of it. And I took the two ends and I put them together. And the middle of it I'll use some other time for something else. Um, but there was like 40-something slides, and I whittled it down to like 35. <laughs> to be fair, most of them are like drawings, so they don't matter. Um, they don't count. And um, so uh, I've talked a lot about like some of the concepts here um, already, and I'm not going to do like review of that stuff. Some, uh, there's a lot of the same stuff, like Jesus touches a blind man, basically making him unclean. Um, Demon possession, all that stuff. We've talked a lot about sort of this kind of stuff. Um, Today, here's what we're going to do. Something wildly different because there is a literary device that Matthew is using at the end and it's really important for the understanding of how to read the book of Matthew. It's a really important message from the early church to us. Um, But before we get there, we're going to study the entire Old Testament real fast. Just real fast. Okay? Um, I, I think it'll connect. I think I can land the plane. Um, and so let's, let's pray. Got to pray. Um, and then we're going to jump into the first passage here. And um, pay attention. There's a lot going on. Um, and I would recommend today that you turn on your Bibles. <laughs> um, and if you, if you don't have, for some reason, if, like you're, if you're like a cave person and you don't have a device in your hands, um, grab one of the books manual books in front of you. Um, now, those are ESV. It's a different kind of translation than I'm using. Um, I don't preach out of the ESV anymore. I use the NIV. I got tired of... Don't worry about it. Um, and I'm preaching out of the NIV, but there's some stuff I want you to sort of see. I want you to hold it and look at it, okay? So, all right. I think we can do this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Um, Guide us this morning, guide our hearts and our minds, take us on a journey. Um, Let us understand the minds of ancient people. Let us understand how they viewed the world, what they were going through, how it relates to us today. Um, Thank you for preserving these ancient texts. 
Um, thank you for uh, the people that you put in this world to write these things and to protect these things and guard these things so that we could gather together in this modern age and get a glimpse of, of how the people interacted with you, with the divine, with um, a higher um, power in this world, uh, a center, the center of it all, the center that, that is, we believe, love. And I ask that you would reveal some things to us this morning that we have, we have missed, that we haven't been able to see um, and give us those pieces to the puzzle maybe that, that we've been missing so that we can look at the thing in, in a new way. Uh, thank you. In your name. Amen. We're going to start right here in uh, verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? So first off, for starters, a little bit on this before we get going. Blindness was incredibly common in the ancient world. Um, so here's like a, a small-scale model of like ancient Jerusalem. Um, and most of the, the world's cities at the time looked like this, like, like a lot of tan, like, like the interiors of like every house on the market, like tan. Um, and um, it was obviously before the invention of Ray-Bans, before we were blessed with Ray-Bans. Um, and you you basically, your eyes would be subjected to bright and hot all the time. A lot of people went blind. There was these clouds of flies that carried diseases. Um, a lot of people went blind in the ancient world, very common. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, uh, there's two things I notice in this passage. For starters, Jesus walks right by them. There's these blind men standing there yelling out, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus cruises on by. Okay, that's interesting. Um, if you look into this, this is a very rabbinical thing to do. Um, in, in all actuality, there was probably a lot of people out on the streets. In that day, you picture Jesus walking through the streets, and there's a crowd of people. They know there's a traveling, preaching healer in their city. There was a lot of these kinds of people, messianic kind of figures in that day. Um, and a lot of them had different people calling out, look, it's, this is the son of David. Like They're calling out, like, I believe this is the person we've been looking for. I believe this is the person we've been looking for. Um, and we're going to get to all that in a minute. Um, but these guys probably weren't alone. There was probably other people on the streets. Every other passage you see, there's constantly people gathered around him. Matthew purposely doesn't mention crowds all the time. In the previous passage, there's a woman pushing her way through the crowd to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Matthew doesn't even bother to mention, by the way, there's like 100 people crowding around Jesus. So Jesus passes right on by these guys and goes into a house or a building of some sort. And these guys follow him in. And it's not until they follow him in that he turns and addresses them and says, do you think I'm able to do this? This is a very rabbinical thing to do. Um, there's a scholar, a Jewish Christian scholar named um, Dr. Ray Vanderland, who, who's talked about how when he was in um, like Messianic rabbinical studies, like studying Messianic Judaism, he, there was a, a rabbi that he wanted to, that he was studying under, and he at one point went to this guy and said, I would like to convert to Judaism, and, and the rabbi said, no, it's not going to happen. Um, and then about a year later, he said, I would like to convert to Judaism. And he said, nope. And then about a year later, he did it one more time. I would like to convert to Judaism. And the, and the guy's like, okay, I've been actually waiting for you to ask the third time. Um, they would regularly say no to people who wanted to follow three times. They're testing your willingness to change. They're telling your willingness to be committed to this thing. They're testing your tenacity, your, how you handle rejection, your, your level of like, no, I'm in. I want this. and I'm going to keep pursuing this. This is likely part of what Jesus is doing when he walks by people and doesn't address them and then addresses them after they follow. Um, 
And here's the thing about that. I think it's an important idea. Um, we spend a lot of time um, like group yelling today, right? Especially online. Um, group yelling. A bunch of people all know each other, have an echo chamber, and all yell the same thing. Um, and so it's easy when you're in a group of people, a crowd of people, to say something that it is beneficial to say um, to earn their trust and their glory, if you will, um, their approval. It's easy to do that. It's more difficult to act out and say that thing in secret and silence and in quiet when it's really just you and this other person. So there's all kinds of groups, even political groups, faith groups, that are all yelling different things. There's the Me Too, Me Too movements. There's Black Lives Matter. There's all these groups. And it's easy to say these things, but then when you get, when you get into the moment of it's just you, and you have an opportunity to do something to help free somebody from oppression or to not take part in oppression, but in doing so, it costs you in some way. It's easy then. You're not with the crowd. Nobody's going to see, and there's just silence, and there's no action. Um, Jesus is sort of, he's sort of pointing out that, like, in, it's in those moments when you're actually, like, you say, yes, I believe in, like, uh, you know, we shouldn't buy things that are like oppressing people. And then like, you're going to buy a $5 shirt that obviously, that obviously that shirt took part in exactly what you're against, but nobody's going to see, nobody's going to know. It's in those moments when like people are honest. Um, or when you're, when you're questioning whether or not you really, do you, you say Jesus is Lord, but then there's all these other things that like you're kind of replacing the teachings of Christ with. And it's in those moments that you're really being honest about what you really believe, who you really are. And this book, the book of Matthew, was written by Pastor Matthew, uh, a pastor of a church, and, and likely in community with his church, writing this gospel of Matthew as a message to the future churches, including us. And every little instance is there for a reason. Every little piece is there for the church to ponder. Um, and we must realize that oftentimes the reason we say, say things and claim to believe things is because it's easy and beneficial to those around us to say it. But who are you by yourself? Who is that person? That's who you really are. That's what you really believe. Um, and it's sort of a call to honesty. So there's that. Um, that's the first thing that I notice in the passage. The second thing I notice in the passage is that they call out to Jesus when he's going by and they say, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, um, a couple of months ago, I referenced Son of David and Son of Man, and I said, one day we're going to open those up and look at the big picture of what that means. Welcome to someday. Um, so uh, I'm going to take a few minutes, and I'm going to lay this out for you because I think it's vital to your understanding of, of, of Christ as you're reading the book of Matthew, especially. Um, before I get going, the Son of Man is an idea, sort of a spinoff of something Isaiah said, and... It's, it's the same thing as Son of David, except it includes suffering, okay? I'm going to spend all my time over here on Son of David. If you take the ideas that you're going to hear from Son of David and you apply suffering, that in order to do these things, suffering must come first, that is Son of Man, okay? That's the best way I can sort of whittle it down to like layman ideas. Um, so, Son of David. They, Jesus walks by, they say, have mercy on us, Son of David, um, so I'm going to start and open this concept up with you. I'm going to start by explaining the differences between our view of time and their view of time. This is all sort of important in this. So we have a linear view of time. It starts, you know, 
at some point, I believe it was the Vatican or something, said this is going to be like year one. It's going to center around Jesus, right? So um, now we're in year 218, 200 and 2000, 200, 2018 years from Christ, right? And then before that, there was a time before that where everything is counting up to this day. Um, believe it or not, before the year one, people weren't saying it's year 300, okay? And we're counting down. And at some point, someone's like, oh no, what happens when we get to one? It's the end. Um, that's, they didn't believe time works like that. We believe it does, and we believe it will count infinitely this way until we screwed up and wreck ourselves, right? And then it will just end, right? No. Um, so we had this linear view of time. They had what's called a cyclical view of time. Things went round and round in their minds. And, and here's what this means. So if we were to pick a, a spot on the timeline, we would say 1349 BC. That's what we call it. The ancient Israelites would have called it year 80 of King Ehud's reign. That's what they would have called it. Um, pretty close to the end of King Ehud's reign. And eventually King Ehud's reign would end when he died, and there would be, we would enter into Shamgar's reign, year one. And then things would happen, and they would, they would label them in these times. And before that, it was Othniel's reign. And so you're, you're going to read in the Old Testament a lot of this language, and in the New Testament, really, language that says um, the current age, and then language that says the age that is to come. This is what this is, Okay. This present age, the age that is to come, um, this is how they would talk about sort of time. This is the only measurement they had of time. Um, now, so a lot of the way that they would tell their history in the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, as they would call it, the, the way that they would tell their history is a lot of it was passed down orally and eventually it's written down. I want you to think about this. Judges, the book of Judges, um, covers... Uh, a timeline of 410 years, and it was written after that. So you have these stories happening here that wouldn't be written down for 400 years, but they would be kept in what's called oral tradition. Their oral tradition was incredibly accurate. They had specific um, traditions. They had methods of keeping oral tradition that they would, as they're being raised, those specific people that would be over the maintaining of the oral tradition to keep it the way it was supposed to be. Um, and actually, they believed you should only write stuff down when you were in danger of, of losing it. Like, the oral tradition to them was so, was so much more important than, than written tradition. Because written tradition could be deteriorated and lost. Oral tradition would not because it would be passed from person to person, right? And we think, well, that's backwards. Because we have copy machines. Um, now, so, this oral tradition is being told over and over and over and over. And as they're telling it, um, they start noticing patterns, in their stories, over and over. These circles, these, these times, these ages, um, these cycles of, of their history would follow the same pattern every single time. And all of this had theological significance to them. Um, when you read books like the former prophets, um, which is Joshua, Judges, First and Samuel, First and Kings, um, you... You start to see these patterns. The same thing happens over and over and over again. I'm going to read one to you, and I'm going to explain how it works in the cycle, okay? Um, so the, one of the best ways to understand this is it starts, with, it starts with a king coming to power at the top, like noon. Anyone who's, anyone who's not here today and is listening on the podcast is going to be so lost. <laughs> so much drawing. So come to church next time. Now, <laughs> it's going to start with, at the very top, 12 o'clock noon, with... The king. The king comes to power. Now, 
Um, there is two ways this could go once the king comes to power. They could do what's right in the sight of the Lord. They could follow the teachings of their Deuteronomistic history. They could, they could, they could live um, in accordance with the commands of Yahweh, their God. Um, they could exercise justice and mercy. They could um, avoid craven images. They couldn't even make a craven image like a carving of Yahweh. It was forbidden. Um, or, if they did that, if they, if they kept with the ways that God had given them to live, things would go well for them. And if they didn't, things would go differently. I wrote a song about a decade ago called Deuteronomy 6. It starts off, I've heard you, O Lord, the choice that you've offered between blessing and curse. Blessed are the ones who remain in you. And I've had tons of people over the years say, I don't like that line. It sounds really harsh. And I was like, well, it's the Israelite mindset. This is how they viewed the world. Um, now, the cycle went like this. It's, it, there's, in Judges chapter 2, it lays out in eight verses the entire cycle. It goes like this. Um, Israelite, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they abandoned the Lord. So it starts off, there's a king, he makes bad choices, and he does evil. He does evil in the sight of the Lord. From that point on, something else happened. Step two, he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, because that's what plunderers do. Um, and then he sold them into the power of their enemies all around. So they noticed when they did what was evil, when they when they chased after and worshipped the things that other nations were chasing after and worshipping and not Yahweh, um, they would end up in oppression every time, always. They would end up being conquered by some local tribe or people and they'd be oppressed by those people for a specific amount of time, a long, usually a long time. Eventually, they would get really sick of this and they would ponder, where did this go wrong? And they would realize... um, we don't want to be here in this oppression anymore. And they would cry out to God. And it says, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the power of those who plundered them. So there is this evil, it ends in oppression, and they stop and they cry out to the Lord. Now, according to their understanding of God, God was gracious. Whenever you cried out, anyone who cried out for freedom, God would never abandon them. He would always make a way to bring them back. Anyone who cried out for freedom. At any point. So they cry out. And then it says this. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he delivered, from, uh, from the hand of their, he delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord would be moved to pity by their groaning because of those who persecuted or oppressed them. So they're, they're in oppression. And God would raise up this judge. Oftentimes it was, it was uh, somebody of, maybe even somebody of like flawed character. Or... Um, people who wouldn't normally in those days be raised up. Um, Deborah, um, Samson, like these people that were just wildly flawed. And he would raise them up. And now when it says judges, um, I know you think somebody with a gavel and a black robe. The only person who we have any record of judging called a judge was Deborah, who literally held court under a tree. She's it. You, You should really think of this word judges. You think of them as kings. They were... They were military leaders. They were political leaders. They were um, sometimes even doing priestly things. So they were, for all intents and purposes, leaders and kings. God was raising up these kings. So the people do bad things, stupid things. They end up in oppression. The people get together. They cry out for a leader. God chooses somebody random, raises them up. This one person does this incredible thing and sets them free. Then... um, 
It says, but whenever the judge died, they would relapse and behave worse than their ancestors, following other gods, worshiping them and bowing down to them. So there is this deliverance, and then, and then there is this rule, and then there is this death, and then it starts over again, and there's another choice to make, and every single time they made the wrong choice, they got their eyes off of God, um, and things went really bad for them. If you are reading the Old Testament, this is the lens you should read it through. This is the story of the Old Testament from the very beginning to the very end of it. It is told over and over and over that this is the cycle of our people. This is what we do every single time. Okay. Um, This is also really important to understand because the scriptures from beginning to end, Old and New Testament, were written by oppressed people. That's really important to understand because oftentimes... um, those of us who read it who have never been oppressed in any way, we read it, the scriptures, and we miss a lot of the main themes because we don't have the same mindset of those who have been oppressed. And there are other groups of people who are reading the same scriptures we are, and they're seeing things that we oftentimes are incapable of seeing because we have not had the same experience and viewpoint as the authors of the text who were oppressed. They wrote these things down to communicate to their, their um, communities, here's how we got where we are. Look at the pattern. Look at how things have flowed through time. And as they look back, all they could see was the same thing over and over and over again. So there's that. I hope you're still with me. Now, fast forward 2,000 years. Well, maybe even maybe just twelve or thirteen centuries, um, and and you come to the time of Christ. Um, you come to the first century, and the people are still telling their children the stories. Here's how things have been for us. Whenever we do the wrong thing, we end up here. But when we cry out, God is always gracious and merciful to send a redeemer to save us. And as you read through the scriptures, this is what you see. And they're teaching their kids these things. Um, and they're gathering in the synagogues and they're telling these stories over and over and over to remind themselves this is how we got where we are. Now, in the first century, what part of the cycle were they in? That is the big question you should start with when you get to the New Testament. They are here under Roman oppression. They are not free. Their land has been taken over by the Romans. They're at least in their land this time. This is different. It's like half. Um, But they're oppressed nonetheless, which tells them that at some point they did evil. Okay? They got things off track. That's why you have people like John the Baptist walking out of the temple into the desert and saying, we need to start over. We've screwed this whole thing up. Right? Um, And they are now crying out. There was entire traditions in the first century that were centered around crying out. Um, Mary, mother mother of Jesus, um, she was a member of a a group of women called the Anawim. Um, I love this group and and what they did. I I, um, I even named a record after like 10 years ago, like the Anawim. It's it's an incredible uh, group of women who, um, who would gather every day on the steps of the temple and they would cry out for deliverance. For the next step. And they would say, God, send the judge, send the king, send the son of David. This is what they're crying out for, the son of David. David was the greatest king Israel had. He unified them and led them for a while on the right path. And it was the one shining moment they could look back to and say, that's when we nailed it. 
We stayed with God. We didn't, we didn't get led astray and we flourished. Send a new son of David, a new king. And every day these women would gather on the steps and they would cry out for freedom. Now, here's the thing. When, when you read like the Magnificat, like the Song of Mary, stuff like that in the scriptures, a lot of us who are, are not from a viewpoint of oppressed people, we read this and we, we make it all spiritual and we say, was coming to save us, set us, when, he, when it says set us free, he's setting us free from our sins, in which I would say, yes, but they also meant it literally. They were oppressed and wanted to be set free. So there is this different mindset there that oftentimes we miss. Um, and when people are coming up to Jesus, these blind men, and they walk up to Jesus and they say, have mercy on us, son of David. This right here is who they believe he is. They believe he is the one who is coming and is going to deliver them and then is going to rule. That is where we find ourselves in the first century in Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus is walking down the street and they say, Son of David, this is who they think he is. And they're right. They don't fully know it yet. Um, And so Jesus turns to them. And he says, do you believe I am able to do this? Now, let's read the rest of this passage. So he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. And Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. And they're like, okay. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. Fail. Um, while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought into Jesus. Uh, and when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute, spoke, and the crowd was amazed and said, this is important, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Um, But stuff like that had been seen in Israel, right? I mean, like, they'd always had these deliverers rise up, these kings. So, yeah, but this one's different. This is a message from Matthew and his early church to, to you and I that we would understand this was different. This was not the typical you know, rabble-rousing judge rising up like Samson to knock and kill some people. Jesus did this in a completely different way. Um, first off, it was absolutely nonviolent. He went up against the greatest military force in the world and did not lift a sword. And the second one of his followers lifts a sword, he says, put that away. And he is able to stand up to them and end up he ends up being crucified as a display of like Roman might as we're going to end and crush this rebellion here and now. This person who thinks he's going to come in like a judge or a king and rise up and, 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 and conquer us like, like your people have done before, this is not going to happen. And they publicly hang him on a cross and they kill him and he dies. Um, and then three days later, his people are running around saying, oh no, he's back. And, and they're like, well, that's, that's impossible. And, and then for the next three or four years, um, this movement grows and grows and grows. And for the next 40 years, his followers are beaten and burned alive and tortured, saying, we saw him alive. This did not end. Jesus was able to mount this rebellion of peace by showing love to the lowest of the low and, and reconciling these filthy people to clean people and making them all one family and overthrow. This eventually destroyed Rome. This is what happened. And so when they come up to Jesus and they say, 
you're the son of David. They are right. He is the new king. But it's a whole other kind of king. And so Matthew writes that the people were amazed and they wrote, nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. This is a whole new thing in human history to them. So, um, nothing like this has ever happened. There's been plenty of kings, but there's never been this healer. There's, and here's the thing. The kings had always been, the people that rose up, had always been like this national thing where they would set all the people free. But Jesus, instead of just setting a community free, which he did... He also set individuals free. He also was caring about the healing of individuals. So not only was he reconciling an entire people and nation to God, he was reconciling the individuals to each other the whole time. And people outside the community, bringing them in, reconciling them. And so this whole thing is a brand new thing that had never been done, was hardly able to be understood, which is why the religious leaders are accusing him of terrible things the whole time. Now, there's that. There's the son of David idea. That's who they think Jesus is. That's who they think. So hopefully you have that idea. Um, And maybe now if you spend some time reading the Old Testament, you'll see this. It will make sense to you. And then you're going to read the New Testament and you're going to see some other language like like Jesus has come to set us free. And you're going to see not just one thing. You're going to see two things. You're going to see not just me personally, but also all of us together from the things that oppress us all. That God does care about these things. Now, we're going to go a little farther. We're going to go to the next passage. And this is where um, I want you to turn on your Bibles or open your Bibles, whatever you do. I want you to look at this passage um, because most of the Bibles that you're going to use have the words of Jesus in red. And for this passage, that's actually pretty important um, because there's a literary device that Matthew uses. So we have in the storytelling of Matthew, Matthew, again, is not writing chronologically. He rearranges events to make theological arguments to his people. And there's a narrator line that is used here, okay, that Matthew adds. And it is a narration that adds to the story and gives a little description. And it goes like this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Now, that's Matthew chapter 9. It's the last verses, really, there's two more verses after that, that come before the end of this section and the beginning of chapter 10. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 4, the end of it, right before you get to chapter 5. You're going to see a verse, uh, Matthew 4, 23. And when you read it, you're going to have some deja vu. Because it goes like this. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And you're going to realize that these are identical verses with only a couple of details changed. And when you read them in the Greek, they're like identical you're like, why was Jesus, I mean, why was Matthew recycling words and phrases? This is a way, a literary device that ancient people would use. Um, First off, here's all the things that were the same. There's teaching, proclaiming, healing, diseases, sickness. All of that is the same. The only thing that is switched is the locations. Um, And then there are like two verses after each of these passages that give a little more detail. Um... But there's something else going on. There's something that Matthew is doing here to paint a picture of Jesus for you. Okay. And in order to get this, I have to draw a little timeline. Okay. So here we go. This is going to be a timeline of the book of Matthew. So starting in, in, in chapter four, Jesus calls his disciples. He says, you, 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 come follow me. These are rejected people, right? That nobody cares about, nobody wants. He says, you're going to follow me. Then we get to Matthew 4, 23, where it says he went into this... He went into the towns, healing, preaching, sickness, diseases, all of that. Then, so 
after this, he spends the next four chapters doing the things that Matthew 4.23 says. So it's sort of like Matthew says, um, here's the things Jesus is going to do. Here's a record of Jesus doing these things. Okay? Then you have the narrator line once again in Matthew 35, sandwiched by Jesus sending his disciples. So what you end up with here is if you were to label these things like A, B, C, then it would go B, A. So there's a flow to it. it. It's sort of like it dips down and ends up back where it started, except when it ends, you have the disciples carrying on the proclaiming and the healing. Now, a lot of you are like, what does this have to do with anything? Okay, this is actually super important. Let me, let me try my best to explain this to you. Jesus calls his disciples and he says, here's what we're going to do. And then he, t- he does it all while they're watching. He's like, you don't have to do anything. You're just going to be there. You're going to witness to what I'm doing. You can ask some questions. I'm going to teach you. He leads them through the whole thing. He gets to the end here. And the phrase is, is pronounced again, the same phrase. Then he sends them out to do all of the things that he was doing. This is like discipleship 101, okay? He says, come with me. I want to show you what, I, what I'm going to do. He does it. And he says, now that you've seen me do that, it's your turn. What he's doing here is he's, he's passing the torch. My work is not separate from your work. The things that I'm doing, going into the world to proclaim and to heal and to teach, this is not just something that Jesus does, redeeming people and rescuing people from their problems, from calling people to repent and change and, 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 and leading them in a new direction. This is not just something that we sit around and wait for, for Jesus to do. He says, it's your turn now, and you're going to pick up this thing, and you're going to run with it. Have you ever heard voices in, in Christianity and evangelicalism say things like, well, justice work is fine, and social justice, I guess it's pretty important, but it's not. It's a secondary thing to the gospel. I would argue... When they say that, they're actually missing what the gospel is and what the gospel entails. I would, to quote the Princess Bride, I would say, the gospel, I do not think that word means what you think it means. (laughs) I would say, Jesus is the son of David, the king who is ruling and has called you to rule with him, to carry on his work. Because Jesus, who is Jesus? It's God incarnate in the flesh. You're there. You're in the flesh. It's Jesus there. God in the flesh. Jesus, as the story goes, there's the ascension. And then what happens? We are gathered together and we are called the body of Christ. So now God has no body, human physical body here, but us when we come together. That is by design so that we will carry on the work of Jesus and what he's doing. The whole time saying, we do this because Jesus is Lord. And we are doing the work of the Lord. And so we become doctors and we become um, lawyers and we become mechanics and school teachers and we become pastors and we go, we go to school, we go to seminary, we, we learn and we study so that we can do the healing and the preaching and the teaching and the work of saving people from all of the things that have oppressed them in their life and in their world the whole time saying, they're like, why are you doing this? Oh, you don't know? I'm a citizen of heaven. 
a citizen of the kingdom of God. We have a king. It's not any of your little podunk kings here in this world. It's a whole different king. We have, <laughs> uh, I, I sometimes want to claim that, that anonymous thing, we are legion. We are everywhere. You know, like we're, we're in every country in the world, and we are part of a different, different country altogether, like a different kingdom. And it's not that God has told us, hang out, sit around, I got this, I'm going to fix everything. He like literally, he, he took us and, he, and he, he did this. He showed us how it's done. He poured his life out, had his body broken and poured out to bring healing to people. But then he didn't stand up and say, you see what I did? It's all done. He, you know what he did? He said, now it's your turn. I'm going. I'm going to leave this in your hands. And you're going to heal people. You're going to rescue people. And there's people who are oppressed in so many different ways. And you're going to jump in. Why? Because it's part of the gospel work. It's part of the renewing of all things and reconciling of all things to to the Lord, to God. Not just to God, but also to each other. This This is what we are called to do as followers of Christ. He is passing the torch. And it's almost these two narrative lines. It's almost like... Jesus turns and like, it's, it's like Matthew made a movie and it's this part where Jesus turns and looks at the camera and says, um, and here's, here's the great, because you come to the end of this thing and he says, I would like you to pray that God would send more people to do this work. And it's sort of like, yeah, I know you're talking to me, right? Because here's what he says. After that verse, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and they were helpless. And I mean, doesn't take long to watch the news in the morning to see harassed and helpless people. Um, like sheep without a shepherd. People who, who don't have a way out. Nobody, nobody there to rescue and guide them. They're just lost. They don't know how they got there. By the way, this is, this is a scenario in which a scribe in the Old Testament sits down and goes, I need to write down our story for you. I want you to read it. Here it goes. And they're going to write it down. Here's how we got where we are. Um, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm like the only one doing this. I hope it's been a good show that you've been watching for all this time. At what point are you going to pick up at least a basket and start putting stuff in it and start gathering with me? Because there's, there's work to do. I would love more people. And then it says, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into this harvest field. So he's like, he's speaking to his disciples, and he's not even saying, like, get out here. He's like looking at them. It's it's almost like this guilt mover. He's like, hey, will you pray that other people would join me, please? They're like, yeah, I will pray that other people will join. Fine. Let's go. All right? And it's sort of like, it's like he looks out and he sees all this work to be done that he's been doing but all through Israel's history, they've been sitting, waiting, crying out, send somebody, send somebody. And God always has. He's always been there. Anyone who calls out, he wants to rescue. He's there. He's, yes, I'm there to rescue you. However, this is a moment where the king lowers himself to the level of everyone else, puts on flesh like you and I, washes your feet and says, what are you not getting? At what point are you going to do this? All right? And there are many people who have understood this, who go, who do this work. And there are many people who don't. And there are many people who, 
seem like they're doing the same work, but one of them is doing for the glory of God. Like there's, there's doctors who, who have studied and, and, and learned all of these things and they have, they have the ability to heal people um, of their diseases and their pains and their suffering. And they do this um, not for their own benefit, but for the kingdom of God. Why? Because they understand who Lord King Jesus is, son of David, and they are working with the king to restore things to how they should be. And there's others of us who are just kind of like, it's a really great way to make a living, make a lot of money. And I, and I get to rub elbows with very powerful people. And if you were here on Easter, Paul would look at you and say, yeah, that's worldly though. This appearance of power and opulence, it's worldly. We do this because people need to be set free. This is why we do it. Um, this is a call to the church. This is a call to us. The reason Matthew writes this exactly the way that he does is so that his audience would not miss the point. You have a part to play in this kingdom. You can't sit around and wait for God to fix everything. God is asking for you to follow and he's passing the torch to his body, the church. I believe God is gonna set everything right. But the plan that God has is to use the church, his body here in this world. Um, There's no king but Jesus, but there's no body of Christ here but the church. We are the body of Christ. This is vitally important. Um, I do do want to take a moment. We're going to go to communion and pray about all of this. I want to take a moment with you, uh, if I could. um, There's some dear friends of mine that are leaving Tuesday to go to Africa to live there for five years. And they have like 84 grandchildren here and um 85 85 grandchildren um hyperbole um and i want to after this service if you want to gather i'm going to gather right over here they're here this morning with their extended family and uh i'm going to pray over them and with them and anyone who wants to pray over them with us i want to welcome you to come on up um putting hands and feet to the commands of jesus um to go and to teach and to rescue people who are oppressed, who may not even know that they are oppressed by things um, that have held them for a long time. And they're doing what Christians have done all over the world for a long time. We go and we wake people up and we say, look, this is not what the intention of God was. And so we're going to spend some time in communion right now. Communion, uh, communion servers, yes, you guys can gather the elements and spread around the room. Communion is a reminder of... Uh, of how this works. If we are the body of Christ, we come to the communion table. There's two elements. There's body broken for us. There's blood. It's just the wine, the blood spilled for all of us. There's nothing like weird or mystical or interesting. These are common things. Communion at the center of this word is common. Common things. But in them, the representation of Christ is there. All of us are at different places in our walk. Some of you are like saints and some of you are sinners. And you know, um, and some of you are, you think you're saints, you're sinners. Um, and you, um, and, and when we come to the table, no matter how good or bad you are, your spiritual performance, your moral performance, it doesn't matter. When we come to the table, no matter how much you've done, we all receive the same thing. Body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ built for you, for the healing and salvation of your life, of your soul. And we are reminded the methods of Jesus are, is how peace enters into the world. It's not through all these earthly ways of military might and sword and politics. It's, it's a servant. It's, it's the most powerful being in the universe coming in the form of a servant. And as a reminder to the church, 
whatever power you have, that only exists so that you can pour it out and serve other people and lift them up and, and, and just wash their feet and make them clean again. And this is how people are made whole. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. So we're going to spend some time in communion. Um, and again, anyone who wants to join us over here, right over here for some time in prayer after this, we'd welcome that. Um, let's, uh, let's pray, shall we? And then take communion. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide our hearts, guide our minds. Let us see the scriptures as it was meant to be seen through the eyes of those who understood what they had done, who understood the mess they had made of things. Um, let our eyes be open um, to the grace that you have, to the calling that you have for us to realign ourselves in light of the teachings of Christ, the revelation about, about who, who God is. And when we look at Christ, we see this whole different picture that humanity has never seen before. Help us to grasp it. Help us to follow it. Help us to uh, pick up where you left off. The work that you want to do through us, through the the hands and feet of your body gathered here. And uh, help us somehow bring healing to this place where we have gotten off track in, in our religions, in our movements, the, the places that we have gotten off track, um, help us to see it, help us to repent. The way we have worshipped other people's gods of power and money and might, help us to throw those things off and remind us that those things only lead to exile, they only lead to pain. Help us to see your humility, to humble ourselves in your presence and in the world around us and to bring healing to our city. Thank you. In your name, amen. Take some time, talk to Jesus this morning.